Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar podcast. My name is Richard Lander and joining me today, as usual, is my co-host Angus Foote and our fund manager research team of Frank Talbot and Nisha Long. So we're going a little off-piece today in the sense that both areas we're looking at might not be front and centre for many investors, but nonetheless offer the chance of enhanced returns in one form or another. So a little later, Nisha will be discussing emerging market debt in both its local and hard currency formats. But first, Frank has run his rule over the alternative use its multi-strategy sector. Uh, now, Frank, to my untrained eye, uh, this is a sector that seems to give managers the opportunity, for, for better or worse, to invest in almost anything. Yeah, the scope and flexibility of these funds is huge, and, and that requires a lot of trust. I'll kind of come into that a bit later. But uh, there's been a significant pullback from these types of alternative fu- investment funds, um, with assets heading for the door in their droves. That's not entirely uncommon following a sell-off like the one we experienced in March last year. The same thing is witnessed you know, time and time again in hedge funds once there's a, a correction. Naturally, you know, once markets regain their footing, there's a smaller perceived need for the sort of protection that these funds offer. You know, why pay for it if it's going to hold you back on the upside? However, that was a while ago now, March 2020, and there hasn't been a great deal to tempt investors back into multi-strategy, despite some of the jitters we've had in equity markets lately. Their reputation uh, isn't as good as it could be. It's somewhat tarnished by uh, some of the large funds in the category, the likes of Aviva, Invesco and Aberdeen Standard, which have delivered uninspiring performance and in some cases too high correlation to equity markets. So that picture of outflows has been ongoing for a number of years. It's not just a post-pandemic crash event. Uh, there's also the point that Nisha highlighted last week when talking about alternative usage in that there's a significant disparity between the best and the worst, particularly when it comes to drawdowns. You buy these products primarily, uh, particularly multi-strategy ones, thinking that they're safe as houses. And when the trouble starts, if they don't perform as you'd expect them to, then that's disappointing. And that's typically what has happened to, to large portions of them. The good news is that unlike our traditional uh, rating system, our alternative uses methodology rules out funds which have had drawdowns of more than 50% greater than the peer group average. So those individuals who may have shot the lights out but also have been punished when markets have come down won't be rated. That's why if you look at the top of the peer group, there are some impressive numbers up there, but ultimately they have come at the expense of the risk that they've exposed investors to you know, I a much higher correlation to those falling equity markets. The fund I'd like to highlight is the NN Investment Partners Alternative Beta Fund. It's run by a trio of AAA rated managers, uh, Willem van Dommelen, Dan van Germet and Stan Verhoeven. Apologies if I got all of those wrong. Um, this is a quant-driven fund uh, that relies heavily on factor investing, specifically looking at what's driving hedge fund returns and identifying the trends that are going to move markets it's it's an interesting portfolio you know just a quick glance at the fact sheet will tell you how quickly the allocations can shift month to month you know i'll walk you through some of those positions to sort of highlight that and at the most basic level their allocation to large cap us equities went from 3.8 percent in february the end of feb to 8.3 percent by the end of march you know, as their models show them that the market's becoming, I guess, more positive on equities after a period of heightened uncertainty. 
Equally, they've moved from a 3% short in the euro stocks to a 1% long in the month. At the other end of the scale, and far more dramatically, there's been a huge swing in their allocation to US treasuries. Going into the month, they were 28% long the US 10-year. Coming out the back of it, they're 12% short. That's a 40% swing month to month. Sounds like a good move, given what's happened to treasury yields. Yeah, you, you, you can understand it. And, and they're taking that barbell approach here where the two-year note has gone from 33% long in the month to finish up the month 57% long. So, you know, they're, they're, they're making that bet on interest rates. Um, other allocations, you know, include a 20% long to US small cap. It's a pretty, pretty decent bet that stayed quite static over the month. And 1% short on the VIX, which is the volatility index of the S&P 500. I mean, all of this, like these massive swings, just demonstrate the faith that you have to have in their strategy, in the managers, in the process of any funds of this ilk, you know, not just these one. You know, they're highly complicated beast. You know, this fund has certainly done well, though. You know, it's kept volatility low at around 7% annualized standard deviation. For some frame of reference right now, that's over three years. If you were looking at any equity market in the world, it's probably above 20, you know, even the sort of developed ones. That's typically a number you'd associate with emerging markets. So that number went up after the correction in March 2020 from about 4% annualized standard deviation over three years. And the returns have been, you know, decent, 20%. Tesla, this is not, but uh, they're still uh, still good numbers. Mm. And doing what it says on the tin, like some of those funds. Uh, Angus, is, is this sector purely for professional fund selectors as opposed to, say, financial advisors? Or should it be? That's a really good question. Um, I've just scribbled down three things, actually, while Frank was talking. The first, your opening, your lead in there, Richard, when you said that uh, this is a sector that covers... Or basically anything. <clears throat> I mean, a fund called Alternative Beta makes that point for you, doesn't it? Really, that's not something that you would think of straight away when you think of multi-strategy, uh, Alternative Beta. Um, <clears throat> but Frank also mentioned trust, and trust means for the fund buyer uh, a lot of work. <laughs> it either means blind trust, which of course no professional investor really wants to uh, to put in any manager. Or it means a ton of analysis to work out exactly what the strategy is doing. Uh, our our older listeners will remember the GARS fund, which took a lot of money uh, a few years back. And I remember one fund analyst saying to me, look, the problem with this thing is I'd have to take my whole team in uh, and give each of them a different slice of this fund to analyze. And even then, I probably wouldn't understand what it was doing. And I think that is the key, really, uh, to the point you're making. If you are, I mean, I guess what I'm saying in a long-winded way is no, they're not for the, they're not for the retail end of the market. I, I just don't think people understand well enough what they're doing. And, and to Frank's point about pullback, the there's a cycle here, isn't there? What happens is when the market is roaring ahead, people get excited about the excess returns and they start looking at these more, um, these racier types of strategies. But at the same time, they think that they're going to give them capital protection. And then you get a you get a correction. They are disappointed at the level of capital protection they got, and they start to pull out of those funds. So uh, it does come back to when you say doing what it says on the tin. If doing what it says on the tin is delivering capital protection in a downside market, then people are going to stay in it. But if if it doesn't, then you know it's really 
a hell of a lot of work for the the, uh, the investor to understand what's going on. I mean, Frank, all the categories you mentioned there uh, are pretty straightforward, vanilla, you know, US big caps, small caps, treasuries, etc. But I remember looking at GARs a few years ago, and there was, they were pairing things like the krona and the oil, the Norwegian krona and the oil price, which you can see... You can see the connection. Oil price goes up, so does the grown and blah, blah, blah. But, and this was being marketed, you know, the daylights out of it were being marketed to small firm financial advisors up and down Britain who bought it in billions. But that's a classic, sorry to cut in, Richard, but that's yeah, a classic yeah. case of, of, you know, exactly the, I mean, it illustrates exactly what you said. It's something that, what it said on the tin was this would protect you in all types of markets. And that's why people bought it. And it actually didn't do what it said on the tin in that sense and, uh, and that was the that was the the great weakness yeah there's a difference between an aim and a guarantee isn't there brilliant so nisha the slightly less complicated area of emerging market bonds but for any fixed income investors this is often touted as the the last place on earth to get some decent yield. Oh, gosh. Um, so if you want fixed income, in my opinion, if you want um, fixed income exposure that delivers yield, you have to look at the emerging markets, uh, whether that's in hard currency, local currency, or even EM corporates. It's just, if you look at the many million, well, trillions of dollars of um, bonds at the moment that have negative yields, you know, where do you look for yield? You know, emerging markets is the place. And investors have been flocking there as well. So it's, it has been a rough ride for um, emerging markets over the past year. But just looking at flows in 2020 for European domiciled, um, overall, EM debt funds gained 4.3 billion euros in net inflows. But that mostly came in the second half of the year. The first half of the year, as you can imagine, was a shambles. Q1, emerging market debt lost 13.4 billion um, and then recouped um, in Q4 with 12 billion going into um, emerging market debt. Um, but as I said before, emerging market debt is attractive and it's renewed interest with investors because of the yields you can get there. Um, and some of the fund managers I've spoken to as well is, you know, it's not your normal e EM kind of countries that they're going into, like, for example, China. You know, it is the ones which are providing, um, you know, the yield at the moment, but also the ones which are rated investment grade by S&P or Moody's. You know, so there are some investment grade opportunities out there in the emerging market world. So it's not just all, you know, your high yield or, um, you know, to get the exposure. Um, but there has been an influx into local currency in particular, which tends to do well if the U.S. economy is growing rather than slowing down. That's what we saw last year. You know, we did see, you know, local currency <clears throat> really taking in the money. But now there's kind of a, uh, not a massive reverse, but it's hard currency now, um, which is really attractive to investors. I mean, the currency risk, as you all know, it is lower because it's in, denominated in U.S. dollars. So companies or sovereigns are borrowing in US dollar terms. So it just gives you that element of some kind of protection because you are in the US dollar. But as the um, US government, as we've seen really, Biden is really um, pumping in money into infrastructure. So they're spending more 
um, which can lead, which will eventually lead to a, a weaker dollar, um, which is you know expected. Analysts are expecting that at the moment. But for local currency bonds, or, or even more so, hard currency bonds, this is you know is good for the emerging markets. Um, and that's why I want to come to the managers. I want to speak about is I could go on with twenty or thirty managers in this, but I won't. <laughs> but emerging market hard currency, absolutely great. Um, one manager, um, Daniel Shaikovic, he's AAA rated. But he's from Vanguard. Now, you'd usually associate Vanguard with passive investments, but this active fund is very good. The Vanguard Emerging Market Bond Investor Fund. He's been AAA rated for quite a while. Over the past year, he returned 23% over um, yeah, the last year in US dollar terms. And this is while his index, the EM, JP Morgan EMBI Plus Index, returned you know, about 8% to the end of March. So you know, there's quite a big difference there. Um, but as I mentioned, the countries that he's invested in, you wouldn't think of, you know, in an emerging market portfolio. He holds Morocco, for example, um, Brazil, which you kind of expect, Colombia, Mexico and Indonesia as the top sovereigns that he holds. But also Qatar, which has only over the past few years entered into the emerging market sphere. But they are all offering real yields, you know, real good yields. Um, so Indonesia is yielding 6.5% at the moment on 10-year government bonds. And I've noticed that, you know, he's not the only manager who's gone into Indonesia. A manager whom people might know, um, quite famous, Michael Hassenstab, you know, he's gone into Indonesia this year. He's not doing so well, he's not rated, but, you know, you can just see where the movements are going. Um, so, but his fund has a healthy weight in investment grade. It's at forty percent in investment grade, which you might not usually associate with emerging market funds. Um, quickly moving on to emerging market local currency, where I really think that's where um, the opportunities are at the moment. Um, definitely with Danat Abraka, sorry Manov, I can't say his name. But, um, AAA rated Eaton Vance manager. Um, so he manages this fund with John Bao, Michael Kirami and Eric Stein. And again, he's in not obscure countries, but he's in Serbia, like 8%, Sri Lanka, Indonesia. And I have to state that it is a risky investment, especially going into these countries. It is not your say, mainstay of these um, funds, but you can see where the managers have to go to find that yield and give you know investors what they need. Um, they are going places where they probably wouldn't have gone, say, two years ago or even a year ago, you know, to get those yields. And the last manager I want to mention is um, someone who is doing a blended approach of hard currency and local currency. So if you want you know, the best of both worlds, Kem Karakadag and Ricardo Adrige, AAA managers um, in the Bearings team who have a very strong emerging market team. Um, on the Emerging Market Debt Blended Total Return Fund, and over the past year, 33%. And if you think about it, this being a, well, fixed income fund, 33% is quite cushy. You know, I wouldn't mind going into that fund. Um, but again, investing in Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, which we've also heard of, um, Ukraine and India. Um, so mostly, I think these funds are going towards and gravitating towards Latin America, which from what I can see from, you know, the top 10 managers who have done well, their exposures to Latin America have increased over the past year quite a bit. So yeah, opportunities are there for the taking. And it might not be as risky as, say, going into alternative uses, bond strategies, or going into even 
some of the um, global flexible strategies that, that are out there. It's worth a look, definitely, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, Angus, what's not to like about those sorts of yields and those sorts of returns for your for your community out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, listening to uh, listening to Nisha talking, one of the things that struck me was how much bond investment has changed in the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years. You talked uh, about riskier areas, Nisha, but I mean, the countries we're talking about, just, just some of the countries mentioned, Serbia, China, South Africa, Ukraine, India, these are totally different countries, to, you know, totally different to one another, different levels of stability, different sizes, different sector biases, I'm hugely different. And I think one of the challenges of looking at emerging markets generally is that it's, it's an outdated term, isn't it? Or it certainly is in the way it's used uh, to categorize funds in this way. Uh, and I think that uh, if you're looking at managers, then you're going to have to look really closely at exactly what their, uh, not just what their universe is, but what part of the universe they're operating in. Because you, you talked also, Nisha, about investment grade in emerging markets. Well, you know, it used to be the case that the reason you went to emerging markets and the reason that you got a higher return was it was a, it was it wasn't investment grade, you know, or it wasn't it wasn't deemed to be on the same level as uh, as developed markets, and, and and that was why you got a greater return. So, so making, yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is that that um, that risk return. Uh, calculation that the, the selector is doing is a lot more complicated than it ever used to be. We've had these things in the past, haven't we, where people lump together certain groups of emerging markets to try and try and uh, define some kind of commonality right back to BRICS. And uh, Nisha, you were talking last week about, was it, was it crabs? Was there some new acronym yeah, that someone's yeah, come up is. with, which yeah, are all based around probably. emerging markets that are commodity, that, that are likely to, to win yeah, from a commodity. surge in commodity demand. And I mean, you know, there's a sort of a logic to it, but really, uh, I, I just think there's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of due diligence needs to be done sorting out, you know, which managers to go into. Oh, no, absolutely. One I didn't mention, actually, in the um, top tens of these managers who are doing really well, you won't see China in their top tens. Um, that was five years ago. You would have seen that completely. But as I think we've mentioned quite a few times on this podcast before, that China is in a world of its own. It's a, you know, a different kind of entity. If you want emerging market exposure in China bonds, you're going to go to a dedicated fund that is in China, um, you know, for um, the bond allocations and these funds the general global emerging market type of debt funds you know the allocations to china is just minuscule compared to the likes of you wouldn't have known that indonesia is one of the top holdings in so many portfolios at the moment you know as i said for the yields to get you know those attractive high above five percent yields that you're not seeing anywhere else no, I mean, I mean, look at the UK, 0.8%. Totally. I mean, I guess what I was trying to say in a very long-winded way was that the job of the fixed income fund selector has become massively more complicated, certainly over the last 10 years. And that's why we need yeah, them. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's why we need them. Lovely. Well, thank you all, Nisa, Angus and Frank. And thank you to everyone who's listening. And thank you to Alan Walsh putting this together and producing it for us. Uh, two hugely interesting sectors uh, for us to chew on there. Uh, and Goodbye from us all, and we'll see you again in another fortnight.